0: Come to the Science Ramble, where each month we look at a part of the human experience and how it links to a recently published advance in the natural sciences. My name is Simon Lichtinger, and today we'll talk about observing the twilight sky and how large satellite constellations will soon make that more difficult. What is it that connects human generations across history and prehistory? Over the last 10,000 years, the experience of living on Earth has changed at faster and faster rates. The increase in populations and their concentration in cities has been exponential, interrupted only by war, famine and disease. Technology has ascended on a similar trajectory, and, despite common conceptions driven by the ego of modern Western culture, this did not just start with the scientific evolution of the Renaissance in Europe. Human agricultural civilization, of the kind we know from European and Oriental prehistory in Mesopotamia, has arisen independently several times on different continents, by the domestication of local plants and animals into staple crops and livestock. All these cultures have achieved impressive technological feats on similar but distinct timelines. The flurry of daytime activity has continued to transform what it feels like to face the sun, but the night sky has always been a big, unifying constant of wonder. Many cultures have associated celestial phenomena with gods and supernatural forces, responsible for good harvest, rains, drought, storms, but also most other aspects of daily life. This combined origin of astronomy and astrology in fact traces the beginnings of observational science, again independently across global cultures. Dating even before the construction of Neolithic settlements, artifacts have been found to depict stars, like a mammoth tusk, more than fifty thousand years old, and stone monuments with astronomical use, like Warrenfield in Scotland, reach back as far as 8,000 BC. In Mesopotamia, the Babylonians recorded detailed tables of Venus's movements as early as the 17th century BC and recognized periodic patterns. The earliest known star catalog dates to the 4th century BC and was collated in China, where a few hundred years later the first supernova was observed by humans as a guest star. Maya astronomers in middle America constructed sophisticated calendars based on their observations of planets, stars and eclipses. Really, these are just a few examples for how truly universal the night sky was to the curiosity of minds across the history of our species, not just confined to a western astronomical tradition, starting with the application of complex mathematics to the heavens in Hellenistic times. But this shared experience is now drastically changing. When I was a child, there were no stars in the sky to the west, thanks to light pollution from a large car factory. And while to the east I could see some bright stars, and I did manage to catch a glimpse of Jupiter's moons through a little telescope. When I asked my parents what that bright star moving slowly across the sky might be, the answer was always, no, Simon, that's a plane. It's one of those ironies of modern times, that technology, starting with the first telescopes of Renaissance Italy, and the observations of Galileo Galilei has enabled us to look ever deeper into the sky, trace the mechanisms by which stars form, by which our own world formed, locate us within our galaxy, even date the origins of the universe. But that technology also interferes so substantially with the nightly look up of the stars. Light pollution, which distinguishes all but the brightest celestial objects, is a recent phenomenon of cities lit up by gas and electricity. This admittedly together with considerations of atmospheric properties, has pushed serious astronomical instruments up the mountains of Hawaii and Chile. But modern technology has also enabled the study of space to leave ground completely, with the emergence of spaceflight in the 20th century. While Gilles Verne, in 1867, imagined projectiles carrying humans to leave Earth, powered by a big cannon, which would squash any living thing on board with its acceleration, the late 19th and early 20th century, saw flourishing imagination and enthusiasm about the possibility of leaving Earth in various forms of vehicles. This included serious thinkers, like the Russian physicist Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who derived the fundamental rocket equation by 1896, and first conceived of the use of liquid fuels, including the then recently discovered liquid oxygen. His work was initially forgotten, but others who later came to the same conclusions in the US and Europe carried out initial experiments, organized by societies of enthusiasts. Rockets had indeed been flying fueled by gunpowder for hundreds of years by this point in China for military purposes and entertainment in the form of fireworks. But the progress made in the early 20th century made the design of rockets feasible, which could reach beyond Earth's atmosphere, that is, above about hundred kilometers. Soon enough, the military of Nazi Germany realized the potential of ballistic missiles and through World War II assembled thousands of V2s a missile design with a range of over 250 kilometers and a payload of around 1000 kilograms of explosives, using forced labours and concentration camps. The V2, although promised to Hitler as a miracle weapon, made no significant impact on the war. Not because it came too late, as is a common myth, but because it was too inaccurate and too expensive for the purpose it was intended to fulfil. But after the war, it took on a second life captured V2 parts were taken back to the US and the Soviet Union, together with the German engineers who had designed them. They were tested, copied and improved upon, mainly on the prospect that they could be armed with nuclear warheads. As the rockets got stronger, another objective became possible, speeding up to the 8 km per second to maintain a stable low Earth orbit. In 1957, the Soviet Union launched the first human-made satellite, called Sputnik, equipped with a simple radio transmitter, The US followed suit half a year later. The space race to ensue, which elevated humans to the moon only a decade later, always had the prestige of space exploration in mind. However, in the context of the Cold War, military reconnaissance and communication was at least as important a driving factor behind the scenes. Science, contrary to the statements made at the time, initially played only a minor role at the backseat of a race between two superpowers, but that was to change. While. After the end of the Apollo program in the early 70s, humans have not traveled again beyond the low Earth orbit of less than 500 kilometers above the surface. A surprising shift in focus came to pass. When people in the first half of the 20th century were imagining space-powered communications technology, they pictured it as human-operated space stations. After all, someone would need to change the vacuum tubes. But rapid advances in computer and robotics technology made possible the fully remote-controlled exploration of our entire solar system from the 1970s onwards. At the same time, Earth's orbits turned busy with artificial satellites. Weather satellites, as well as phone and location services like GPS, all exemplify dual-use military and civilian applications. In addition to these, low-orbit spaceflight became increasingly international and cooperative, with the International Space Station to connect a growing number of nations with space programs. Scientific instruments also turned more and more advanced. Sophisticated rovers crawled the surface of Mars, probes landed on comets, and telescopes moved to space to observe wavelengths of light which are blocked by Earth's atmosphere and thus inaccessible to ground observatories. Following a crisis of the space shuttle program in the 1980s, which broke government monopolies on launching satellites, spaceflight has also become increasingly commercialized. Aviation and aerospace companies like Lockheed Martin or Boeing, had long been involved with US space launches through their respective Atlas and Delta rockets. While many other companies founded in the 1990s went bust in the dot-com bubble, a new generation of private enterprises emerged in the early 2000s, funded by tech billionaires, notably Elon Musk with SpaceX, Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin and Richard Branson with Virgin Galactic. They all want to sell suborbital flights to wealthy customers who want to claim they've been in space. But especially SpaceX has ambitions much beyond. Their Falcon 9 launch system has carried satellites into space 150 times. And following a contract with NASA, the Dragon capsule now operates American launches to the International Space Station. In the long run, ambitious as all of Elon Musk's projects, SpaceX wants to build a manned station on Mars. To achieve this, they need cash flow from other arms of the company and so I turned to profitable low-Earth orbit business. Started in 2015, the Starlink program has approval to launch more than 10,000 satellites to sell fast internet access around the globe. At the time of release of this episode, around 2,000 of these are in orbit, and the number is rapidly increasing, with batches of 60 satellites launched something like 20 times a year. These are satellites built with modern technology, for example, thrusters, which can dispose of satellites at the end of their lifespan by steering them into a decaying orbit, where they will eventually burn up in the atmosphere. This will help with the problem of space junk, large amounts of old satellites and the debris flying around the Earth, posing a danger to space stations and other satellites. But the size of the planned constellation, especially considering that other companies want to follow suit, poses an additional problem. These satellites appear as fast-moving dots in the twilight sky, brighter stars. Not that they emit light themselves. When the sun has already sunk beneath the horizon, satellites in orbit are still illuminated for some time and reflect this light to Earth, much like clouds during sunset, or in fact, the moon. If you were to look up at one of these satellites with your naked eye, you might just see them as a faint dot. But to ground-based astronomical observatories, which expose photographs for multiple seconds to minutes at a time, the satellite's movement makes them appear as streaks crossing the image. Scientists have been aware of this problem for a while, based on simulations of the impact which planned constellations like Starlink are likely to have. A new study from Californian astronomers has now looked into this problem deeper, based on archive data from the Zwicky Transient Facility, or ZTF. This telescope has a viewing angle of about 4 degrees, which is very wide field as modern telescopes go, so it is likely to observe more satellite streaks, which means that statistics quantifying the problem can be more accurate. The scientists have analysed data from about 5,000 satellite streaks they could attribute to the Starling constellation. While in late 2020, only about 6% of the images were affected, this rose to 18% by August 2021, as the number of satellites in orbit has increased. Once the network has reached 10,000 satellites, essentially all images taken by the ZTF will contain at least one streak. This is especially relevant for studies conducted in twilight, just after sunset, when the telescope points to the horizon, This setup is important to investigate objects of the inner solar system because they appear close to the sun, and also for some time-resolved measurements. The field of view is strongly inclined when imaging in this way, which makes the satellites cluster and appear more frequently. While the numbers sound rather grim, an image containing streak isn't lost. Computer software can identify the photobomber and mask out relevant pixels so that only a small fraction of the information is lost, at least at the ZTF. But for different observatories, such as the new Rubin LSST in Chile, there will be much bigger problems. Scientists don't look through modern telescopes with their eyes. Photographic detectors, like the CCD sensors you know from consumer cameras, can suffer from an effect called saturation. When a high-intensity signal strikes a very sensitive detector, electrons can spill over due to the way these sensors are constructed, which produces artifacts that can cover large fractions of the image. That's why the SATCON workshop. Which brought together scientists, satellite companies, and policymakers, recommended a maximum level of brightness which satellites should not exceed. SpaceX subsequently redesigned its Starlink satellites to feature a visor. This is meant to shield the reflective antenna from direct sunlight, which reduces the brightness of reflection emitted from the satellite. Another goal of the ZTF study was to investigate how well this works. The authors find that indeed brightness is reduced almost fivefold for the new visor variant. Unfortunately, About two-thirds of sightings of this new type are still brighter than the recommended maximum level. There must therefore be further mitigation, either in satellite or telescope design, to preserve high-sensitivity twilight astronomy for the future. With ground source city lights, airplanes, and satellites all artificially brightening up the night sky, the previously constant perspective of our small place in the universe has changed, and is still changing. Ancestral grandeur is slipping away. I will not condemn this development, because I do appreciate the convenience of fast internet, accurate GPS, and the like, and because I know what impact adequate streetlining can have on people's sense of safety at night. In fact, I believe that human imagination is triggered by a nightly skyline in a way not too dissimilar from a starry sky. In July 2018, I was lucky enough to experience the longest lunar eclipse of the 21st century, which also coincided with exceptional visibility of the planet Mars just beneath, from a hill overlooking Zurich. It was a clear night, but not a dark one, with an orange glow rising from beneath the nearby lake. The colour palette was unique, and that urban hill may have been the best way I could have imagined to view the eclipse. But when I'm somewhere in the mountains at night, far from big cities, there's nothing to quite compare to that sense of connectedness to the universe, and especially the human past on this planet, so very short on the grand scale of things. As a scientist, I thrive on news of astrophysical discoveries. And as a little bit of a geek, there is an element of excited enjoyment in trying out the latest technological gadgets. But if someone is curious about the past as about the future, I do often wish for a thick, black, but so beautifully intricate starry night. Thanks for listening to the Science Ramble. The show releases on the 1st of every month. So join it again next time for some brand new science.